This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, one of the most trusted stable coins in the digital asset industry. You'll be hearing all about them later in the show. I think it will be a soft landing and, and a soft landing can be um, um, a recession where there's no doom loop um, in the labor market, in which case I think equities can continue to rally and, and we might have seen the lows for the year in, in, in October. We have a lot to get into here, so I just want to start with uh, start kind of high level. Your your most recent piece, uh, which I think is is just coming out, is titled "Pricing Two Pivots into a 2023 Soft Landing." Uh, there aren't that many analysts out there that are calling for a potential soft landing, so I'd love to give uh, maybe we could start things off by just setting the overview for the viewers here. Why do you think we might be headed into a, a soft landing situation? So I think the the first thing to remember uh, is that microeconomic um, uh, models actually work and, and perform extremely well uh, in the COVID crisis. Uh, something as uh, naive as um, uh, what you anyone who studied economics has learned at school is, is the supply-demand curves, um, which are concave slash convex. Um, and, and what it means is basically when you hit into full capacity, that's when basically you don't have a um, an, an output change, but on a shock. But basically everything is hit on um, on on prices. So what happened over COVID is that both the supply and demand curve, like met at the really inelastic part um, of of each curve. So you had no increase in output, but you had a massive increase in in prices. So the, the, my thesis really is that what we are seeing right now is an unwind of those shocks that's also happening uh, on the inelastic, inelastic part. So we're going to see not much of a loss of, of output and not much of a rise in unemployment, but we can see a big um, step down uh, in prices. So that's that's the first thing. And the second is obviously one of the charts uh, that I've published um, on, on, on Twitter, uh, which is just looking at something as uh, naive as, um, uh, you know, looking at inflation versus uh, retail sales deflated by um, uh, core mm. inflation. And, and what's interesting here is that, um, you know, inflation is such a massive lagging indicator. And on my chart, I think it's um, 15 months that you don't even need to look at leading indicators. Um, you know, you just, if if you used uh, that chart at the beginning of 2021, you knew straight away that you had to, to hike. So what we had is like a double shock of uh, supply demand and extremely loose um, uh, monetary policy. In fact, in response, I, I think at the beginning of 2021, we actually had a, a massive, a, a second massive fiscal stimulus on top of um, um, obviously uh, prices forming on the inelastic part of the supply demand curve. And, um, you know, basically 18, 18 months down the line, um, we're exactly at the same point uh, where we are on one side unwinding uh, supply demand shocks, but also uh, obviously we're starting to see the effect of the, uh, of the unprecedented tightening in, in monetary, monetary policy that's happened in 2022. And, and I think I want to, to insist here on the velocity uh, of monetary tightening, which in my opinion, and, and there are different reasons, and, and you, you'll see in my chart pack, 
uh, for example, looking at the senior loan officer survey, you can see that um, mm. standards, banking standards are tightening at a much faster pace than you would have expected. Um, so I would have expected according to uh, my model and, and the lags that I'm looking at, uh, that we would see ha that happen in, in, in the second quarter of, of, of next year. But obviously the velocity of the shock is, um, is increasing, the, 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 is decreasing the lag between uh, monetary policy and hitting the economy. So, I mean, mm. all this is, is really just telling me, um, you know, initially it was more of a speculate, speculative um, call to be like calling for, for a soft landing, but now it's starting to be really looking like I will be right. Uh, and, and my conviction is only increasing uh, on a call I started to make, you know, this summer really. So I want to, there's a lot to unpack uh, in what you just said. And actually, I'd like to, you know, we've talked on this show quite a bit about kind of the delay, and you do a great job of highlighting this in your piece, the delay in the effects of when monetary policy uh, begins and when its effects are actually felt in the real economy, right? You highlighted correctly that one of the most lagging indicators, right, of monetary policy transmission is actually CPI inflation. But can you help give our listeners more of a roadmap? Right in between what are, you know, from the moment that the Fed starts tightening and finally when we start to see CPI react, what are some of the other roadblocks or milestones that you would expect to be seeing maybe 12 months, arguably, into our, our tightening cycle? Yeah. I mean, maybe it would be interesting um, and, and talking more to your audience if we started the other way around, which is first to think about how that burst of inflation started. So that burst of inflation started with used vehicles, where basically you had the first sort of like signs that, you know, supply demand was was going to become an issue, and 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 obviously mm. commodity prices um, as well. So for me, it's first um, purchasing power being hit by headline by headline inflation, and and that would be you know the the first layer of the onion. I can't remember which uh, Fed member was talking about the inflation. Uh, onion, but basically commodity prices, goods prices is like this kind of like wow moment where, you know, you're still working, but you're losing purchasing power because of that. And in Europe, it would be a, a, an energy uh, shock. In, in the US, it was more like a, a, goods, um, a, a goods manufacturing goods uh, shock. And then obviously the, the second, the second uh, layer of the onion is, is making sure that this first shock is actually persistent by like transmitting it via the labor market. So if you've got a labor market that is close to capacity, um, you know, anyone can go and, and to, to their manager, not only with the bargaining power of being able to ask for a rise, but also with the, with the excuse of like saying, you know what, I've lost 10%, um, 15% uh, purchasing power uh, over the past year. And, you know, I need a, I need a rise of like 15% and, and maybe you sort of like settle in the middle and you get to like the 7% mm -hmm. that um, Atlanta uh, wage tracker has, has been, um, has been go going on. Uh, and then obviously, you know, it, it works uh, in reverse when, when, when the Fed starts, um, you know, um, tightening monetary policy. The first thing it, it impacts is, is markets. Uh, so, you know, you see, you, we saw commodities collapse from the Russia-Ukraine uh, war and, and, and start to, to like reverse uh, this year. And, and then we had like a, um, on the back of this, like less supply constraints and goods starting to come down. Uh, you know, used vehicles are now in deflation. Um, 
rents are now in deflation. I mean, some some signals uh, show that um, you know we, we've been in some goods uh, area in, in in deflation for the past three months, um, and and that's obviously on the back of the huge bullwhip effect of um, of the COVID mm. crisis, where basically uh, everyone ended up, uh, all, all, all firms uh, ended up with massive inventories, responding to demand that wasn't really there, but that looked uh, like it was like a, a persistent shock, and, and and it wasn't partly because of the Fed and because and partly because COVID uh, urge to buy goods wasn't gonna last uh, forever, and um, and and the third uh, layer really is is credit. Um, the the way um, uh, the, the way consumers uh, in the U.S. managed to uh, regain purchasing power was through credit, and and it was very easy until this summer when basically money was free. Um, and what I'm saying by money was free, even if rates were already higher at that point, is that uh, if your inflation expectations are still above, say, you know, six, seven percent. Uh, according to some measures, uh, it is still the case, and you can borrow below that, uh, which was still the case this summer. Then you know, for you, basically, money money is free. In in you know, you you borrow at five percent, you get inflation of seven percent. If your if your base salary uh, follows, then you're basically a massive winner. So it's 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 only mm. since um, you know for the last two months really that um, uh, monetary conditions have started to. Uh, to be, you know, in my opinion, close to neutral, uh, even for the consumer. Hmm. So, you know, you, you have a great line in this in this report, uh, you know, where you say you make money anticipating what central banks will do, not reacting to their current moves. Uh, you also indicate that many people, when they're looking for what the Fed is going to do in the future, they'll look to the past, right? So, you know, we're recording this on November 14th. This is obviously subject to change. But right now, a lot of the talk in markets is, is the Fed easing are going to slow down? And can we see a pivot uh, into the future? You have a great chart on uh, you know, what, what the S&P typically does at this point in the hiking cycle. Can you speak to a little bit about the market psychology? Do you see a pivot coming in the near future? And how does the S&P typically perform right at, at where we are in the current uh, hiking cycle? It's a really interesting chart because it's telling you about the lags between financial, con financial conditions and the labor market. So if you're looking at my chart mm. in the 60s, 70s, what's really striking is that it takes uh, a, a number of years uh, before um, tighter financial conditions actually start uh, to collapse uh, nominal growth and, and nominal earnings, um, which is basically total labor uh, input. And, and for me, that was really the Fed worry is that, and, and everyone's worry really, is that um, you know, when, when there is inflation, the labor market is a lot stronger um, inherently. And the reason is that, you know, when you've got, let's say you've got 10 employees and you've got 10% inflation, if you just freeze their salary, you're basically making like, you know, the, your 10%, uh, you're basically cutting your labor cost like 10% in a year, uh, which means that in, even in a recession, you don't really need to sack anyone. Uh, you're, you're becoming a lot more uh, flexible, and that's what Yellen um, was using uh, when she was when she was calling for like the two percent uh, inflation targets in the early '90s. The idea was to grease the wheel, and and that's exactly that. Greasing the wheel is basically 
um, making sure there's enough inflation that when you've got it, that that companies don't have to sack uh, to to raise uh, unemployment at every small downturn. And and when you've got a lot of inflation, you've got a lot more. Um, you know, the, the the labor market is a lot stronger. Um, so my sort of like wow moment where I recommended clients um, to like start uh, playing um, the, the Fed pivot was, you know, realizing that the lags um, in that cycle are still pretty much the same lags that we've seen in the past 30 years. E.g. we can still very much rely on the models uh, that are telling me here that um, you know the labor market uh, in year-on-year -year basis will react to finance to tighter financial conditions with uh, a, a lag of of about six months. And of course, if if you believe that nominal uh, earnings growth will bottom uh, in the next six months, then you're basically in the time period when you want to start uh, playing the, the the downturn and 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 start buying assets, selling dollar. Uh, and, and buying stocks. And, um, and for me, that was, you know, for me, CPI was just sort of, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the nail in the coffin in, in, in my sort of like thesis that we are still in, in, in an environment which is not too different from the last 30, 40 years. We're not in the 70s. And I'm, I think we are much more uh, in an environment which unfortunately doesn't show on, on any of my charts. Uh, you know, post-World War II uh, inflation burst, uh, where suddenly you reopen the economy and everybody's looking to buy at the same time. And obviously you're at max capacity and, and, and you had like a massive burst of inflation and then the year after uh, deflation. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out deflation in 2023. Hmm. So I guess my question to you, Juliet, is do you think that the Fed and specifically Powell view the world in a similar way to what you just described. Uh, you know, you did some great dissection of some of the statements that Powell had made during the last FOMC. Maybe we could get into a little bit about what your thoughts are on what Powell is saying. And then I'd love to get your thoughts on, do you think that he is beginning to think about easing and maybe understanding that there's a lag in between the implementation of monetary policy and when we start to see things in the real economy? Uh, I don't know if he understands, um, but what I do know is that there are, um, you know, Fed members that, clearly get um, that sort of like, a, uh, it's, it's all about, you know, being a Fed that's going to that's gonna be driving, looking in the rear view mirror, which is basically mm. um, inflation, which is like a 18 months lagging indicator, and a Fed which is going to be increasingly driven by leading indicators. And, and, you know, there is evidence of this in the fact that even in um, Volcker's year, uh, the Fed always, literally in the past 70, 80 years of history, um, the Fed never um, pivoted after, um, um, always pivoted before uh, the peak in headline inflation. And, and the reason is that you can be as lagging and as hawkish as you want. Uh, you know, inflation will peak, um, you know, will often peak when you're already in recession. Uh, so I, I don't, I think Powell's doing his job by um, you know promising that uh, rates will keep going higher and that rates will be higher for longer, but the truth is that in the end he will just do what markets, what he will just deliver what what, what markets um, uh, tell him, and you know the proof is that he is looking at this sort of like 
um, pricing of like a three months T bill today versus three months T bill in 18 months. And he will be worried when we start pricing cuts. Uh, in that particular, particular, particular case, I think it doesn't necessarily mean that a recession is, is just around the corner. Um, I think it might just mean that, you know, deflation uh, is around the corner. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, Powell is doing a job of like managing markets expectations. And, and, and the problem with like allowing markets to price the pivot too early is that it, it delays the pivot. And, and I think for me, that that's really the main thing is that you don't want to see uh, financial conditions loosen too early, uh, at least not before you know that um, that chart um, that I was showing you just um, two minutes ago is actually, um, you know, that disinflationary process is actually entrenched. And I think for me, what, what we got in the last CPI is, is, is the first evidence that this disinflationary process is actually entrenched. So we got the first, um, the NFP, which is telling us that we're still really high, even on a quarter and quarter um, basis, we're still high, but we are actually falling in line with what I consider very strong leading indicators. Hmm. So maybe we could, uh, you know, get into what some of those are. And I know you you paid particular attention to the services component uh, of this last month's CPI read. Maybe we could, um, you know, and I know you broke things out between uh, services that include shelter and services that doesn't include shelter. I think, you know, when I look out into the future over the course of the next, uh, you know, six months to a year, say, we've talked a lot on this program about, you know, the, in, like, let's say the overhang in terms of the housing market, right? Because we've obviously watched, uh, you know, rates on the 30-year mortgage go from, you know, around 2% to whatever they are today, about 7% in the span of the last 12 months. I think I saw a chart on Twitter today that that's, uh, you know, the largest uh, rate of change in terms of mortgages in the U.S. in the last 40 or so years. Uh, we haven't really started to see a massive change in housing yet, but I'd love to just get your thoughts maybe on the overall housing market in general and how that kind of translates into the shelter component of CPI. Um, I mean, firstly, on the housing markets, that's part of, um, um, that's one part of my thesis for, for soft lending. Uh, I think we, in terms of um, supply, uh, we're nowhere close to um, you know where we were in 2006, 2007. Uh, for the last 15 years, um, basically the, the the supply of home in the U.S. has has lagged um, household formation. Uh, so you know if you're looking at like a a, a model uh, model of, of this, you you can see that yes, prices will come down. Uh, you know potentially 15, maybe 20 percent. But again, um, mm. I don't think it will. Um, it, and of course, it means that construction will slow down, you know, slow down quite dramatically. But I don't expect a crash. Um, for me, it's really like a, a rebalancing um, and a rebalancing through lower prices. And of course, then when you start to get um, lower prices and, and mortgage uh, yield uh, stabilizes, then you can sort of like restart um, demand and um, and you know that's what I'll be looking at uh, in the next year if and that's what I believe that uh, if yields um, stabilize uh, in terms of um, shelter the reason I look at uh, services ex shelter um, you know we all know that services is is driven mostly by by wages uh, and and for that reason it doesn't really make sense to to add shelter. Uh, in that um, in that aggregate, um, for me, it's uh, to look at um, true domestic 
uh, inflation, you need to look at uh, services X shelter. And if you look at services uh, X shelter, which which is the most um, you know correlated to to look to to domestic uh, wages, you can see firstly that we've picked uh, last month, which is something that I, I very much uh, expected. I know there is this whole thesis. Uh, and with macro pundits that, um, you know, services would be sticky for, for a very long time because um, the market, the, the labor market is at full capacity. And I completely agree the labor market is at full capacity. But where I disagree is what actually drives um, nominal wages. And, and for me, labor market capacity drives real wages. So in other words, if you've got the bargaining power to go and see your boss and say you want to raise and inflation is at 2%, you might get like a, a raise of, of like 4 5% and, and you know that's not going to be a, a much of a worry uh, for Powell. The problem is when you've got your at full capacity uh, in an inflationary environment, you're going to go and see your boss and you're going to want you know 15% and you'll get 10 mm. and, and that's the real issue. So And, and so for me... Uh, you know, it is common sense to believe that headline inflation, goods inflation, will lead um, services inflation wages uh, by a few months. And and that's exactly the same that's happened when we got into the crisis. First, you had the burst of goods and, and then uh, you got to full labor capacity and, and wages um, exploded as well. And you can already see sign of the reversal of that. Um, in other words, once you can be persuaded that you know you're not going to lose your purchasing power again to the tune of um, you know what you've lost in the last 18 months then you're very unlikely to be able to ask for anything close to like um 7% wage and and you can see you know in 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 the last 70 years that uh, you know with with a lag of about um 3 to to 6 months um core core services which is services ex shelter uh, always follows headline mm. inflation. So there isn't a case of like getting aggregate uh, 10% wage when you're in a disinflationary environment. I mean, it's possible. Not, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it, it just wouldn't make sense. And um, and it's not what's happening. Um, so for, for me, it's really the key thing that I saw uh, in the last report is that, you know, first evidence that, um, the, the the labor market is still basically behaving in a way that is not calling for persistent inflation, but is calling for uh, the reason. And, and that, actually, that's what um, Powell said himself uh, during the, the, the press conference. Mm. He actually said that wages were not, he doesn't think wages are, are, are an issue, but he didn't have the evidence before last, last, last Thursday. So I think another number like that, and Powell himself will be convinced. And, and again, I, I really want to stress that he already said that wages was not a problem. So for me, it's really a matter of seeing headline coming down. And headline on a three-month basis is already around 2%. I speak to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance. And as it turns out, they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T 
worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust, I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, in a compliant manner, helps me sleep easy at night, you know? As a seamless trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exec team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. So. I, I want to see if I understand uh, all these relationships that you just laid out correctly, because then I want to get into this other effect uh, that, you know, I think Michael Burry kind of popularized this, but this idea of the bullwhip effect, right? Um, so basically, if, if I understand everything correctly, you know, headline kind of leads uh, services, especially core services. One of the reasons for that is the goods part of the inflationary bucket, right? And when goods uh, kind of goes up, that's a sort of, a you know, consumers feel that the most, right? Because when they go to Walmart or whatever, and they get the things that they need for their daily lives, they're feeling that get more expensive at the same time, headline CPI is going up. And what that allows them to do is go to their, their uh, employers and say, Hey, my life is getting more expensive. I need more money. Right. And then they advocate more successfully for wage increases. And then that's what shows up in core CPI. Right. So a lot of what's driving that inflationary impulse is actually this kind of leading bucket of goods. So maybe with that as an introduction, uh, you know, the a deflationary, uh, you know, headwind that we see for, for goods inflation is this idea of the, the bullwhip effect. So can you describe what exactly that is and, and why it might have a disinflationary or deflationary impact? I mean, the, the, the bullwhip effect is basically along the supply chain, chain um, you know, the, the sort of like misunderstanding of what, of what is the final demand. So, in other words, mm. suddenly you see everybody wants a, a used vehicle and you're not quite sure why, but, you know, it's persistent. And you're basically starting yep. to buy all the vehicles in, in, in the world because you're saying, you know, I'm not sure why, but basically final demand is, is increasing. And, and it's the same with the um, employment market as well, where you're like, you know, everybody's talking about how difficult it is to 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 find employees to find the, the the right ones and and suddenly you're like much more likely to hold on to your employees because um it, you know because it, it's the bullwick effect is like you're not quite sure why but basically everybody wants to hire and then normally there's like the reverse bullwick effect is when you realize this was all fake and you end up with like massive inventories of um, used vehicles and or potentially a lot of like a, unproductive uh, employees because that that's the story of 2022 right you've got like a super strong uh, labor market and like very low growth so what are all those workers doing you know <laughs> they're basically not producing anything uh, that we see in the data yeah. so either that would that will lead to higher unemployment or um you know we need to see a rebound in in productivity and again like productivity numbers are 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 very unreliable. So, you know, maybe there's just, maybe there's just a lag uh, there as well. Um, but that's, that's the bullwhip effect is basically like a, a sort of like a, a, a mirage in the desert uh, mm. where 
you know, you're, you're basically getting an impulse, uh, which is not lasting. So maybe you can walk me through, I mean, first, I'd love to get an understanding of how large this particular bullwhip effect is, uh, maybe like a magnitude check in terms of bullwhip effects in the past. Uh, and then, and how does this get worked through the system, right? Like when I, the easiest thing for my five-year-old brain to conceptualize is like a department store, right? That ordered too many of the wrong thing, basically for this current season, for whatever reason, they misinterpreted, like you said, the, the ultimate end source of the demand, maybe just for an easy to understand example, people thought that they wanted Barbies for Christmas, but instead people wanted the Hess truck. I don't know why that's the thing that's popping into my yeah. head. But uh, how, how do those? How does that inventory actually get worked through the system, and how long I mean, is that going to take? Um, you know, what, one great chart if you want to see the the, the extent uh, of the damage if, is to look on my report on page eight, um, which is the chart I was um, talking to you about with um, core CPI mm. and retail sales. Um, and you can see we used to get like at the highs of a cycle, we used to get like a year on year retail sales growth of like, uh, you know, I think in deflated by C by core CPI around like 5%. Well, in, two in mm. 2021, we got to 25%. And I, I, I remember oh, at the time, I, I remember at the time publishing JDIs where like, Basically, the, the chart was so like it was such a massive shock that I had to use like two pages, and I thought it was quite funny and and actually telling the story that you know if if you put like just the normal acts on on one page, you wouldn't see anything in the history uh, in the history mm. of the index. <clears throat> so you know that's the extent of the of of the bull rip effect, and that's the that's exactly um, the effect that you've had on 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 core CPI. And, and, you know, the reverse is basically the fact that we are now in retail sales and it's going to be really in, an interesting week because we have um, uh, the, a new retail sales number for, for October published this week. Uh, but last month we were on a year on year basis deflated. So like real retail sales at around zero. And so that's telling you the extent uh, of the hungover. Um, and obviously mm. um, further in the, in, in the report, you will see that inventories uh, are still like you know at all time highs and uh, very far uh, above anything we've seen um, in any cycles, and um, and that's not mm. just a U.S. story actually. Um, you know that that's something that I'm you know when when I look at the anywhere one of the good leading indicator of um, of of you know manufacturing in particular uh, in the world is to look at um, you know new orders versus inventories. And the reason that uh, particular leading indicator has completely collapsed is not so much the weakness in demand, because demand is actually still quite resilient, um, even obviously in the US, but also outside the US. But really what you see is like, um, uh, you know, an unprecedented level of like not only uh, purchases, which is like, um, you know, materials, but also finished, uh, finished product. So again, that, that's telling you that production is not going to be going through like a, a sudden stop. And it's, it's, it's the same story as the housing market that we were just discussing. It means it's going to be more of like a price, um, a, a price response because you want to get rid of your inventories. You still have demand, but you're going to be feeling it at lower prices because of, of those mm. like a huge level of, of inventories.
So there's the, you know, there's the lower price effect, right? Which is we've got way too much uh, in our inventory here and we're going to need to move it in one way or another. So that leads to huge discounts and a disinflationary impulse uh, in the price of goods. I have, an, I have another question for you because I'm actually remembering uh, an anecdote from my consultant days. Uh, I, I worked at a, a supplier of aftermarket, an aftermarket supplier of, um, let's call it, I don't want to out my but they basically, there's a large supply of aftermarket goods going into some form of white good. Uh, and aftermarket is basically when you resell individual SKUs into like, let's say a washing machine or something like that. It's not actually a washing machine, but that's the example I'll use. Uh, inventory management is very difficult to do uh, when you're doing aftermarket inventory because you have very low volume and a very high number of SKUs. And if you've been in inventory management, it's much easier to plan when you have higher volume uh, because usually inventory management is done in percent changes, right? So, you know, if you normally move, move 5,000 units per month, uh, there's not a big difference between four and 5,000. But if you only move five units per month, you might move five units or 25 units or zero units for two months. The percent change is very high. So it's very difficult to manage inventory management. And we got brought in and uh, basically we took a look at this uh, aftermarket supplier and we said, most of your inventory is dead. It hasn't moved in 18 months. We find it very unlikely that it's ever going to move. You have to do an asset write down, right? So it moves from assets yeah. uh, on your balance sheet to a negative, uh, you know, on your income statement. And he was like, you know what? I agree with you, but between us, I'm not going to do that because I'm leaving this job in six months and I can realistically within our parameters for what is included in is classified as dead inventory. I can get away with not doing this. And I don't want to take the write down on PN my PL, which is going to impact my bonus. So my yeah. question to you is, I feel like that could be happening a lot as well. Right, whereas maybe not only is some of that inventory going to have to move at a, uh, you know, at a much discounted price, but maybe yeah. some of that inventory is never going to move ultimately, and there's going to be a delayed effect, right? Because managers don't want to recognize this, but maybe six to eight months later, like, all right, we have to recognize this as dead inventory. Then there's going to be a big write down, right, on income statements, and that could lead to earnings misses, right? That's where I'm trying to make this connection ultimately yeah. too. So I'm wondering yeah, if I mean, there's sure, a connection sure. between this book. Yeah. yeah, for for sure, that's go going to be an issue, and I think there will be, um, you know, obvious economic um, weakness feeding through the U.S. economy in Q1, Q2. But um, you know that that's the best time to buy stocks because that's when the Fed like basically starts getting really scared. And where I want to get in that is that as long as you, what I'm calling a soft landing is um, basically potentially like a recession, but where you don't get the doom loop on the on the labor market. Uh, the doom loop is when mm. ba basically uh, you're starting to see lower final demand and you're starting to basically uh, lay off um, employees because of like lower final demand. And, and that in itself like lowers demand and you end up in a real re self-fulfilling um, recession. I don't think it's the case because... Um, um, and, and again, it's very specific to the U.S. economy. There are many vulnerabilities uh, everywhere else in the world, uh, which is why I wouldn't call um, uh, the dollar bull trend, uh, the end of the dollar bull trend uh, yet. But what I see in the U.S. economy is, is the U.S. Is, is an economy which is weaker. Um, and, and the reason it is weaker and, and potentially much weaker is, is just because of higher rates. So when you've got an economy that is that has nothing fundamentally broken, and, and again, you know, it, it could happen, but at the moment I don't see 
um, the vulnerabilities that we've seen in, in the past um, few cycles, whether you're calling like a, a huge um, private um, private um, leverage. There isn't a huge private leverage thanks to, you know, the COVID uh, checks, basically, you know, there's, there's still a lot of room for private le leverage to increase. Uh, there isn't a overhang of um, supply of housing like there was in 2006, 2007. Uh, I don't think valuation are, are, are worrying outside the, the NASDAQ where I still think there, there are vulnerabilities, but we're not, we're probably not talking uh, about anywhere close to the bubble um, that we had in, in, you know, heading into uh, 2000, where basically the equity risk premium was negative. Um, so, you know, the equity risk premium has tightened, uh, but it, it does crazy. it does make sense uh, in a context of much higher rates, uh, because obviously an economy where with much more higher rates has a large cushion of uh, being able to like uh, loosen financial conditions. So, you know, when you've got rates at, at zero, the economy is much more vulnerable than when you've got rates at five, where you basically have like that five percent. Uh, and on top of everything, you still have like potential inflation, which means it's very easy for the Fed, you know, tomorrow to basically drive uh, real yields back to, to negative and then demand will explode again. So as long as I don't see uh, inherent vulnerabilities in the US economy, I think it will be a soft landing. And and a soft landing can be um, um, a recession where there's no doom loop um, in the labor market, in which case I think equities can continue to rally and, and we might have seen the lows for the year in, in, in October. That's fascinating, Juliet. I, I, have, I have a couple more questions for you here, basically just on uh, the, the topic of inflation and how that might, um, or how you see that impacting uh, your call for kind of a, a soft landing. So, you know, one thing that, that's pretty often discussed is this kind of idea of the it's not a double dip recession. It's a double dip inflation almost, right? Which is what we had in the stop start yeah. inflation is what I was looking for in the 70s, right? When, you know, to your point, the Fed, even though they do tend to drive, uh, you know, with their looking out the rear view mirror a little bit, they'll tend to kind of ease off, uh, ease off restricting monetary policy too much because they understand that that lag in, in transmission. In the 70s, kind of pretty famously, right? We, we had stop start inflation where the Fed chairman at the time, Arthur Burns, eased off inflation too quickly, right? And then it kind of came roaring back. And then Powell eventually had to get completely draconian and take Fed funds to something like 18%. And even that took two recessions, I'm pretty sure with, uh, sorry, with Volcker uh, in charge back then. So I guess, I guess my question to you is, uh, you know, how long is it before we ultimately stamp out this inflationary impulse? And do you see the risk of a kind of stop start inflationary period? So um, in, in the US, uh, I'm not sure, but I think it's a really interesting subject in the rest of the world and in, especially in, in Europe. Mm. Um, so in US, um, inflation, in my opinion, is a one-off and there isn't like the sort of like a, um, lagging, like PPI uh, constant, sort of like PPI trickling into CPI. Um, in, in US, uh, PPI is now running at like, I think just above 10%. Uh, in in Europe, uh, I think on average is twenty five percent. In some countries, it's like forty five percent. And and for me, that's much more of an issue because um, you know so far we've got uh, inflation still um, around ten percent. But on on any kind of like revival, demand re revival, I think you will have companies um, trying to use any kind of regained. Uh, price power to actually um, have PPI feed into CPI. 
So I'm much more um, worried about what you just described uh, in countries that have been hit by a supply shock, which has not fed yet through to consumer prices. Um, and, and in my opinion, uh, that will mean that, uh, you know, those currencies and, you know, I'm talking sterling um, or euro still have a really high chance uh, of being devalued uh, versus gold and potentially also versus the dollar. And the reason for that is that we're entering a, a period in 2023 where um, central banks in Luzaria are going to start to have to make compromises, uh, you know, so far in 2022. Uh, we pretty much have full employment uh, everywhere in the world, except maybe in China. And so there hasn't been mm. any need to make compromises. Uh, basically, it was inflation, inflation, inflation. Um, clearly, inflation is also a, an extremely unequal um, microeconomic um, um, force. Um, you know, it hits the, the, the poorest, um, uh, the fastest and, and the worst. Um, but the next... Uh, most uh, painful thing uh, is basically when when those that um, actually lost like a twenty percent purchasing power over the past two years actually lose their job on top of it. So we're talking about a very different environment, and uh, that's the chart that I also um, have in, in in for the next report actually, looking at the lag uh, between global financial conditions and the global labor market. And, and when you can, you can see on the chart very clearly that the main issue in 2023 is going to be unemployment, uh, labor market uh, weakening. So you're going to have central banks who are still being hit by very strong inflationary pressures. And, and that's the case, certainly the case in the UK, where on, on top of uh, those PPI pressures, you, you also have like a a really tight uh, labor market where you just literally can't can't get the can't get the work. Um, so that means like you know that's real inflationary pressures that are continuing to trickle into consumer uh, prices at a time where potentially the central banks won't be able to raise uh, rates enough to counter uh, those forces. And I think we had the first taste of that uh, with the Bank of England. Um, I think it was earlier this month when they basically like um, uh, increase rates by the highest in, in I think three, four decades, 75 base point hike. But then, then we're absolutely um, you know, convinced and trying to convince markets that um, they were not gonna go anywhere close to what markets uh, was pricing at the time. So that's the exact opposite of what Powell is, is trying to do, saying, you know what, I'm hiking today, but I know I'm not gonna be able to hike uh, much more in the future. Um, infl inflation forces are still there, but I'm not going to be able to counter them uh, because employment is going to become my, my main priority uh, and nominal growth. And, and, and that's basically called like, uh, you know, FX war, uh, whatever you name it. Um, mm. it it's, it's, it's particularly interesting in a context where Europe is already starting to get, uh, in, you know, extremely pissed off with the US, uh, with the Inflation Act and, mm. and, and basically... Uh, you know, they didn't call it an, an act of economic war, but, um, you know, for Macron to call it unfriendly is already, um, you know, very, very powerful. And, and the only way to fight back, basically, is, is to regain um, nominal growth via FX devaluation. So I'm, I'm still very convinced that that's what we're going to see in, in, in Europe and, and in UK as well. And, and that's going to be a main theme for, for 2023. 
Um, and you can already see it in, in stocks. I mean, stocks are doing much better uh, in Europe than in the US because of the euro devaluation this year. And, and all those big bets mm. of, um, uh, you know, betting against uh, European equities, you know, it made, that made so much sense uh, after Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, in the end, basically, you, you, you've done much better buying the dips, um, you know, a lot better by buying the dips than, than selling any, any spikes. And, and the reason is, is basically um, the, the ongoing FX war, which, which the Fed doesn't need to play, but all the central banks will be forced into. Yeah, so we we've kind of been talking on the show a little bit uh, historically about these sort of two roads that it seems like we could we could walk down, um, you know, as economies. Which is one, you know, which is what seems like the path that the U.S. is sort of deciding here, which is to say, you know, inflation is out of control. It's the most important thing. We are okay with slightly higher unemployment. We're okay with risking a recession or even, you know, God forbid, uh, the risk of something that looks more like a depression. But price stability is ultimately the most important thing. We've got to rein ourselves back to reality, raise rates. And then there's kind of this other path that you could walk down and say, ultimately, our debt to GDP is too high. Uh, It's too painful, basically, to take our medicine at this point. And for reasons X, Y, and Z, we just don't want to do that. And instead, what we're going to do is sort of you know, to oversimplify, inflate our way out of our problem, right? So we finally have uh, kind of nominal uh, growth uh, or GDP that's back in line with with the current debt that we have. What, what I'm kind of hearing you say is that in the US, we might, you know, we, we've kind of had this world where inflation has been very consistent across different countries, right? It like differs here and there, but across most developed countries, we've been in a world of disinflation for the last uh, 40 or so years. What I'm hearing you say is that we might actually see a break and that the United States might be somewhat successful, right, in terms of raising rates and we might land ourselves a soft recession over here. But yeah, it's completely different forces. Um, In in the US, you have demand-led inflation. So that's not going to trickle down. The problem is in Europe, you've got chronic PPI, so cost-led inflation, and it's not a one-off. So that's really Mm. what I want to say is that for, for the Fed to try and um, target inflation when it's a demand, it's clearly a demand phenomenon is, is one thing. And, and you should absolutely pursue uh, that mandate when it's demand led. There's no risk that you're going to kill demand too much and end up in a doom loop. But when it's cost led, which is the case in, in, in Europe and, and UK, you're talking a completely different game because you're basically trying to push down. Um, you, you're basically trying to curb demand to put it to the same level of like a, a constrained supply. And, and at the same time, that basically strengthens the dollar and actually increases your inflation. So you're in a, a vicious circle because of the Fed, where you basically end up like um, um, in a deflationary depression if you just keep pushing uh, without, and you're not going to get any result, results. It's like a Sisyphean task of basically trying to like strengthen your currency and kill demand when, um, in, in fact, um, you know, it is a chronic shock. And the only thing that really you should be doing if you were Mrs. Lagarde is keep real rates, um, you know, negative to incite investment. Uh, the only thing that's going to be bringing energy to, to Europe is not killing demand. It's basically, you know, bringing up investment. And that's, you know, what Europe desperately, desperately needs is not, um, you know, like massively positive real rates. It's basically massively negative real rates so that you can unleash supply, supply of energy, which might take, it still will take a few years, but at least there will be like a, a light at the end of, of the tunnel to, to look forward to. 
So maybe we could talk, uh, you know, just in closing here about some of your how your kind of macroeconomic thesis translates into asset prices. So um, I'd love to maybe talk about like, I know you mentioned you're uh, potentially slightly positive on European stocks. Um, I'd love to get your outlook on kind of uh, American stocks as well. And then if you have any views on commodities or precious metals, um, love to just get your kind of outlook for the next six to 12 months. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at the moment, I think um, every month by its uh, by its own because there's a lot happening. So I'm trying to like uh, sort of like strategize into an horizon that I know well and where I think I can add value to clients and more importantly, uh, have really good um, risk rewards. So what I've recommended uh, early earlier this month is to get back full on into cyclical equities. So that means not US, not NASDAQ. Uh, I'm looking outside the US where I think there's more value, Europe, emerging markets. Also where I think the you know potential devaluation um, of the currency will be a tailwind for, for, for stocks. Um, as you know, in emerging markets, uh, you know, you can have like a, an FX crisis and that's normally the time where, you know, everybody's trying to sell the equities and actually like equities start uh, making new highs. So we, I think we're looking at the similar thing here. Um, in the same sort of theme, I really like gold. Um, I think we're headed back uh, into uh, times where central banks will, will be much more bound uh, by their employment um, mandate and, and therefore won't be able to do enough for inflation. Uh, that means real yields will come back down. And, and I think that will be an environment which is very promising uh, for gold. Um, I generally like commodities uh, as well. So I've recommended um, as well to go back uh, long commodities earlier this month. Awesome. Well, Juliet, you've been uh, extremely generous with your time. Uh, you know, I can't recommend your research uh, highly enough. If viewers want to find out more about you, follow you, subscribe to the work you do, what's the best way to do that? So I've got a, so, so my name is Juliette Declerc. So I founded um, JDI Research in 2016. Uh, my client base is mostly uh, institutionals. So real money, hedge funds, um, some, a lot of family offices and, and, and some high net worth. Um, the way I work is basically by uh, always integrating trade recommendations in my macro um, outlook. So, you know, in other way, I'm like connecting the dots from macro or politics or health, you know, whatever's important for markets, I become an expert in uh, and, and basically like recommend to, to clients, um, you know, high risk reward, uh, high impact, high risk reward uh, trades, according to my uh, outlook. You can find me on um, jdiresearch.com or on Twitter at uh, JDI Juliet. And, um, you know, get get in touch if you think that I could buy, add value to, to your business or your framework. Awesome. Juliet, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming on on the margin and we'll have to do it again soon.